Welcome to Matters After Print, Episode 4, A Conversation with Ilyas Kassam. The poem is broken in places, and the child is googling his name, and the child is staring at his eyes, and the Kleenex is free of its politics, and Corbin and Cameron are listening to jazz, and the child is pointing at McDonald's, and the waitress comes with the bill, and the bill looks like a Rizzler, and the eyes look like tobacco, and McDonald's is reading Das Kapital, and the child is running in circles. That was a short extract from the piece Waterboard Suicide, written by Ilyas Kassam, whom I have with me today to discuss his work and his artistic process. This is another episode in a series of interviews entitled Matters After Print, in which I, Benjamin Wolfe, founder and editor of The Horizon magazine, discuss the works contained in the magazine with the talented artists and writers who submitted them. Waterboard Suicide is a medium-length, highly political poem. It appears to draw structural inspiration from the style of slam poetry and within the piece claims content inspiration from Sophie Robertson's poem, Imagine Bringing Back Waterboarding. It is a poem that is drawn forward and progressed through the repeated line opening and the, and the, and the, creating a great sense of forward momentum as the reader is propelled past images and references of 21st century consumer culture and politics. There is also a mild absurdity which complicates the response in the reader. My Favourite Triangle is a vastly different piece. It is a prose piece composed of a long single sentence as the speaker of the piece holds a mug of tea in their hands, considers its evaporation, in tandem with their own ontological status, considering a painting on the wall and what appears to be the mourning of their mother. For listeners who have not yet read the pieces, they can be found on pages 33 and 37 of issue one of the Horizon magazine, which is free to read online and in print. But but before we discuss your work, Ilyas, In this show, we like to begin with a profile of the artist or writer in question. This can be anything to give an idea of who you are, your age, where you come from, where you're living, the experiences you're going through. Anything to give the the listener some insight into who you are as a writer and a person. Um, So could you give a small profile? Uh, Yeah, hi. And oh yeah, that was very, (laughs) very nice intro. Um, Thank you. I, who am I? I'm not sure. I guess that's mostly what I'm trying to figure out mm. uh, through the poetry. Um, I guess I'm, yeah, born nearish London, work there. I paint and write and, yeah, mostly concerned with ideas around mysticism and absurdism and this idea of, like, kind of truth as a, as almost like a non-concept. Um, and I'm very much focused into this idea of like, uh, kind of that autonomic writing or a state of find trying to find that sort of like state of freedom or oneness with something that, uh, kind of takes the self out outside of the, whatever's being done. Um, so that I don't need to actually <laughs> be... Yeah, find a way to like not assert the ego so much mm. or be in that space. Yeah, I feel um, like I feel like those things really do come through in your writing and a few of those uh, topics are things that I really want to uh, comment on later. Um, so uh, before that, I mean, have you been writing for a long time? I mean, it, you said you paint as well. So have you been writing, creating painting for a long time like, since you were a child or is it a recent thing uh, that you've discovered? Yeah, I think it's... Um... I've always liked doing creative things, but I was never really particularly good at anything or knew what I was trying to do. Um, But about 10 years ago, uh, I got really sick and uh, I kind of like shifted my life to, it had to become much more like peaceful and meditative. And while everybody else was out partying and stuff, I would come home, I would like brew some tea and I would just sit and like meditate on the world for like an hour. And, um, and that kind of led me to a lot of, you know, quite deep into philosophy and into like tea ceremony. And I started developing a creative practice that was much more like 
uh, I don't know, maybe not serious, but grounded in some sort of metaphysic or some idea that appeared more pertinent or had some kind of like meaning to it. And um, I went on this kind of journey to try and understand. I had this sort of strange idea that if I, um, that I was sick for a reason and if the reason, um, I don't know what the reason is, but it probably involves some sort of change. And if I make that change, then the reason will no longer exist. And I was like, how do I find this change? So I was like, well, if I just pursue wisdom, then the change will automatically occur. So I went on this idea of like, you know, this, this anxious, insane pursuit of wisdom or truth or whatever these um, insane philosophers have been doing for thousands of years. And I guess I got to the point that I was like, yeah, this is, this, this, this doesn't work. (laughs) Um, uh, But it did lead me to so many incredible things. And it was, I got into this sort of idea of um, kind of using thought as a vehicle to connect to the world or be uh, kind of just open your eyes to sort of things rather than trying to interrogate it or um, analyze it. And so as this kind of realization came about, everything shifted more towards the poetic and less to the Mm. philosophical, Um, but still in love with this kind of somewhat philosophical meter or rhetoric that um, had this, had this depth to it which is kind of like yeah we look we look at this stuff and we go deep into it um but more that we look at it and we go deep into it and we don't need to like tell you what it is Mm. i mean that Uh, was a fantastic answer (laughs) there's 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 a lot there's a lot there and a lot of things uh that really made me think about um so to start with, I, I really like that idea that you, you said that you, you kind of were always creating, but you weren't very good at it, which, um, you know, I think many people feel about their own work. And, you know, I, I've seen the work you've submitted and I've also I have I, I went on your website and I have seen some of your painting as well. And you clearly are a very good artist. And I think it's interesting that, you know, for you, there was this definitive moment of shift, this 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 event that happened in your life that led you to choose to focus more on that art you know in response to your sickness you thought you needed to be more meditative and thoughtful and you know almost dedicated to a practice instead of just doing something you know what I mean and and you know there's obvious comparisons of that uh you can find everywhere in the world I think the most famous would be like Frida Kahlo and how she uh really blossomed and 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 became dedicated to her artwork due to um, what for her was a great injury, um, also a sickness, I guess, in a way. Um, but I find that really interesting. But what's brilliant about what you said as well is that idea that at first you were trying to seek something. I think you phrased it as like wisdom or this like knowledge, which would kind of answer questions. And that was kind of your pursuit through um like your pursuit and your driving force in this creative experience and i mean this might sound horrible to say but i love how you know your ultimate conclusion was that that didn't work that that you didn't achieve this like um uh greater wisdom that answered all those questions you were looking for but still you developed things that were really important new ways of thinking new ways of interacting with the world because i think a big part of art um, is misunderstood when people think that you know it's it's all about this explosive transcendent pursuit of something of this like this ineffable knowledge but really it's just it's if anything a form of communication where you develop um, new ways of thinking and new ways of engaging and that knowledge is is maybe better more productive more important than discovering some transcendent truth that we're looking for um but yeah, I mean, brilliant, brilliant answer. I mean, a lot of fact, there are far more than just a quick biography on oh, who yes. you are. But, um, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing we were looking for. So before we delve too far into these, um, you know, metaphysical topics, um, let's let's try and let's, let's, let's ground it into your work to start with. So um, something I'd like to comment about is the vast differences between the two pieces of work um, that we have in the magazine. And not only that, you submitted one or two additional pieces alongside this. And I mean, we found it very difficult to choose between your pieces because we loved them all. Um, but it also showed 
um, a lot of differences. You know, they were all quite unique as works. Um, so, you know, uh, we, we are, uh, could you comment a bit on, you know, you, you have just now explained kind of what led you to your artistic process, but what formed your style? Um, you know, what works or writers have influenced you? Because you have this, this great kind of like slam poet-esque kind of like um, work in, a, uh, in Waterboard Suicide. And then my favorite triangle is this really, I mean, almost modernist experimentation of like a single unbroken sentence, a single unbroken thought. Um, so kind of what inspired you? How, how have you developed those writing styles? Um, I don't know. They just kind of, I guess they just emerge. Mm, that's um, impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely do draw from other uh, writers. I'm not as well read as um, uh, my dress hopes to convey. But um, I mean, Fernando Pessoa has always been like this mm. very large figure for me and was at I think at the time when I got into poetry and writing was this sort of strange kind of friend that I used to like almost like wander the streets talking to um and I love this kind of I don't know if you I feel familiar with Fernando Pessoa's work yeah the uh the um, book of disquiet I've read of um and I'm not sure did he publish much yeah. else that was well known yeah, so he's he's really he's this fascinating because he actually has published under maybe forty or fifty different mm, pseudonyms, yeah. mm. and they all kind of have contradictory perspectives, and they do like they even write like uh, sort of literary criticism on each other, mm. and I mean before you go deep into like all the like crazy personalities of Fernando Pessoa, just the general. I think um, the book of Disquiet is Alberto Cairo. Or, no, Bernardo Suarez is like the pseudonym who wrote that. Mm, and yeah. there's just this strange, um, there's just really direct paradoxical experience of reality. And I think that's a lot of what my uh, writing is trying to get is to sort of almost unwork language in certain ways. And so all these styles are different ways of me trying to unwork um, the language as it currently exists or currently um, is used. Uh, so I don't know if that makes sense, but basically, yeah, what I'm saying is that basically if you take like music or painting, um, other art forms, they they don't have the baggage that language does because of the utility of language. So, you know, we use it to write like legal documents and emails and all that kind of stuff. So there's this like intelligibility that is kind of the pressure that is put on language. And I think a lot of the work that I'm, a lot of the work I'm trying to do is trying to abstract language to kind of its most paradoxical sense state. So it doesn't make sense and it doesn't really um, confine itself to the normal structures um, so that it becomes in a sense more true because it's more direct and um, non-logical. And so I think uh, Clarice Lispector is another um, uh, poet, a writer who I totally love because she, I think she does that as well in a very direct way. Um, that was a, yeah, I sorry, mean, I didn't a, have the answer. No, that's, that's brilliant. No, it's, it's, it's a great answer. And it, is, uh, I, it wasn't what I was expecting because obviously most of the time um, if you get... Uh, a single writer writing two very different uh, pieces of work and you're like oh you know what what what's the reason behind this they'll you know be like well x is trying to do what uh, x is trying to do one thing and y is trying to do another you know that they're different because they've got different intentions and i think this this uh inspiration of fernando pessoa it, it it really unifies them in a way that i didn't first imagine um because they i mean they are formally strikingly different pieces i mean you know one's a poem and the other is prose i guess it's, it's poetic lyrical prose but still um and and so they they seemed separate but i think that drawing on those inspirations of uh fernando pessoa um and even uh, clarice uh, lispector to an extent it really 
it, it, it really unifies them in their lack of unity. Um, you know, with, as you were mentioning, um, Fernando Basur, uh, his work is, you know, written under many, many pseudonyms, um, which in, interact and engage with each other. So you, in his work, you have this sense of separation, but unity in that separation. And I think it's very interesting that that is a big aspect of your work. And this idea of the, the, the baggage of language, um, I mean, it's something that's quite dear to my heart, which is maybe why I was so attracted to your work um, when we were selecting pieces. Um, but uh, yeah, this idea of all the weight that can be carried in language, I think that comes across very strongly in your work. And it is something that we're going to uh, touch on later when we look closer um, at the texts. And I find it interesting how you say that it's something that you don't get so much in music and in art and I think to an extent that is true. I think many of our uh, conversations in this interview series, we've been talking kind of about the different ways that these forms um, engage with each other. And um, a lot of the time the artists do talk about how, uh, I think one of uh, the artists we were talking to, um, Roy Sheen, um, she, she writes poems and then her paintings come from those poems. And she was talking a lot about how the the paintings offer a, f a different reading to the language and there is this this baggage this 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 innate quality of language that is often not addressed but the the when you start to notice it you feel like it is the only thing that you must address that you must focus on mm, and yeah. m many of my favorite writers some of the ones you mentioned and for me i think people like samuel beckett who i think i found things in um my favorite triangle that reminded me of some of his work uh, these kind of long continuous sentences and many many clauses that kind of interrogate and contradict each other um but there are these people who are obsessed with language and i, I love it i think it's great so yeah but it's a great example of mm. of what i was talking about like maybe better than the, the ones i mentioned mm. okay well that's yeah. i'm glad you i'm glad you think that because yeah that that was the first thing i mean He's he's a great favorite of mine, but that that's uh, one of the first people that I really went. Oh, this I would think would be an influence. Um, but yeah, while we're on this topic of language, um, briefly, because uh, you know I'm, I'm sure it's quite a quick answer. But um, can we talk about your writing process, like the actual what you do when you write a piece? Um, like, do you sit down? And I know you kind of uh, mentioned this about kind of you entering this meditative process um, that kind of led you to writing more and creating more. But like now, um, do, do you do you kind of just sit down and stream of words come out or is there an extensive planning process? Um, kind of where do your ideas come from and how do you work them through into a written piece? Um, well, so like when I was doing this like kind of grand philosophical pursuit to understand things, I did come to some kind of like ideas of reality that I was um, that I was very like. I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is the world. This is truth. Mm. Let's like, I got to write about it. I'm going to write this big book about it or whatever. So I had this idea of a book I really wanted to write and I sat down every day to try and write it, but it was pretty boring because I'd already done all the thinking and the writing was just articulating things, not that well, that had already been thought. And so while I was trying, trying to do this and failing to do it, I would also like just randomly come home and start like jotting crap down on my typewriter and after about like eight months or so I had this wad of um uh typewritten kind of I called them like extracts of consciousness or something they were just like these random half poems not really poems sort of things diary extracts and I realized that this was a much more um uh precise and truer version of what I was trying to write in the other book and I never really tried to write them. They just kind of came when I gave them space. And so I canned the book I was trying to write and I published this as, uh, uh, as a book. And at that moment, I decided I would give up writing um, in order to essentially become a writer. And so Brilliant. since then, I've just, I, I've given up writing and in its cheesiest form, I just, you know, it's like about living passionately and carrying a pen. And, and then obviously there are things that, you know, as you publish more and um, there's a kind of professionalism assumed, 
then you kind of extract, you start, I don't know, recently I have been taking it more seriously and looking into structure and form and these sort of things and the mm. editing process has become a bit more. But the the initial seed of how a poem is written is always uh, instantaneous, normally mm. in the bath, on the tube, wherever it is. That's brilliant. Um, You're very good at creating these... Um these like these one-line phrases that are just brilliant quotes you know i i had to give up writing to become a writer was fantastic and um you know just living passionately and carrying a pen these these are these are, if we lived in a country that had bumper stickers i think they would work really well um but no that We're was ready to shift a bumper sticker uh, poems yeah. yeah um but but yeah i mean that's that is incredibly interesting because obviously people are very different in their idea of how they write and we have these famous um texts and essays about it you know i mean to give some cliche examples i mean like one of the distinctions here would be you know william wordsworth's idea that poetry is like a great experience that you reflect on later which is the opposite of what you think when you, what you were first trying to do you had these moments of great thinking and when you tried to reflect on them later you felt maybe i don't know if it was a sense of inauthenticity or it was just that you weren't being able to convey those thoughts as well as you thought the first time and then you have the opposite side this automatic writing side that you know was really uh, popular amongst beat writers such as jack kerouac even if it's maybe questionable whether he ever actually did that but um yeah this uh this idea of you know just writing passionately at the moment in kind of a stream and you know editing later maybe but like the idea is that you 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 don't think and then write you think and write um and, yeah i think and, it's go on sorry no 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 it's i mean i think even with my art or everything it's very much because i think i was talking about the idea of truth but truth not being conceptual it's really very much about closing that gap as much mm. as possible between thinking and writing so it is mm. that the writing i mean it's very difficult to close it completely but that the the writing is the thinking yeah right yeah. and i think yeah and i think that's great i think there there is i mean it's 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 a topic that we will never that we can't give a definitive answer on in this interview or even these series of interviews because you know there, there's points on all sides and there's so many things to consider and often it's just about what works for you you know there's people who write novels often say that it would be impossible to do without planning you know you get uh, people like margaret atwood who she has many famous things about talking about starting at the end of a novel working backwards and and then you get other people who just say that you know anything like that is taking away the authenticity of writing that that you the second you start doing that you lose this connection like you say closing the gap and i think that there's truth on both sides and it's just interesting it's just interesting to see um, the different perspectives and I think as you kind of mentioned that now is as you're getting further along and you, it's becoming a thing you do more you kind of have a little bit more of editing you're doing a little bit of both and I think everyone gets there eventually I think if anything it's easier to um, learn to write spontaneously and then learn to edit than it is to learn to write structurally and then try and seek that spontaneity you know um, yeah I think well yeah, I don't know. For me, there's there's kind of maybe it's an unnecessary dichotomy, but it's like there's like there's like the soul and the form, mm -hmm. and there's so much there's so much in life, at least in our modern world, that that can that can strangle the soul. So it's the it's the essential it's the essential thing that needs to be constantly created space for. And I feel like professionalism is this this kind of great thing that allows you to hone like the kind of ingredients or the tools that you have but unless they're connected to their like root or the like the actual essence of what you're dealing with mm. they they all become kind of vacuous and sort of superfluous and so i think a lot of the time uh you know if when people ask me like you know how, so how do i write poetry is like i mean just go sit in a corner in silence for an hour like that's <laughs> this do that and then and then write something like Mm. Um, I mean, it's great advice. Yeah, it's you know, simple but it, effective. Yeah. But I guess it also depends. Um, it's 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 what your intention of writing is. Like I think what I said makes sense in terms of my intention. But then when you say like they're these incredible writers who have these really like mathematically meticulous like um, structures in place, and they make incredible works, and mm. that always baffles me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's quite it's quite um, it's hard. It's, sometimes it's hard to understand how the other side works in creative uh, things because, you know, 
there are so many facets to creation. There are so many different ways to do it. There are so many, you know, different styles and things that work for you. And sometimes it can just be because something works so well for you, because it's so important or integral to your own practice that the other side just seems alien. But you're right. Mm, you see, sure, then, yeah. the thing is, you see these amazing pieces of work, and you're just like, well, I mean, you know, you're you're happy for the outcome, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think, go on, go on. No, 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 I just, I I love that that exists because then you can have these like uh, writers even who are like your friends and then writers who are your kind of distant idols or whatever that there's no matter, I don't know. I think sometimes when you start doing something, you get so concerned with your own work that you're always trying to like, draw from other people's or become better or whatever it is and then i like the idea that there will always be people writing that stuff that is incredible and completely irrelevant to your own work so you can still always just love that or like love writing and never like lose that because of the fact that there are just so many different people doing things in different ways for that are completely irrelevant to anything you do. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's refreshing. Yeah. It's nice to kind of like separate any ego egoism from it as well, you know, something so on you and it can be something that you love. It's just a nice experience. Um, okay, so we've, we've, we've given quite a, quite a good explanation of kind of your thoughts on writing in general and, and you know, because that's kind of what the first part of this interview is about. Um, so I think now would be a good time to kind of really focus in on the pieces that were submitted for the uh, to the horizon magazine um i'd like to start with um my favorite triangle and um it'd be great to just hear a little bit because i we we talked a bit about what got you into writing and kind of generally what your writing um means to you and how it's part of a larger process and all those things but specifically could we talk a bit about the inspirations for this piece? Um, how did this text come to be? What inspired you to write it? Um, were there any texts you were emulating or was it a form that just felt natural to the content that you wanted to communicate? Um, yeah, I think this is kind of, uh, it was a new form that kind of emerged recently. Um, I think, um, it has, there is a kind of, like, maybe a lot drawn from a writer called John Farce. Mm. Um, and there's this kind of, again, it's like trying to achieve some sort of direct or realness with life. And I think that this sort of style of, it's, it's kind of strange in its way that it's like slow and kind of meditative, but... At the same time, it's just an endless ongoing sentence for like two pages that doesn't that doesn't really relent. And I think that's kind of what life maybe feels like to me is, you know, you're just sitting and you're drinking a cup of tea and so many things are happening at once and nothing's really going on. You're sort of just drinking this tea and you're thinking about your dinner for this evening and you're also... Um, you're also sad about whatever you are, like that your bro girlfriend broke up with you or that, um, I don't know, you just didn't sleep well last night or, and then in that sadness, there's some sort of criticism of that sadness. And then there's a uh, kind of criticism of your criticism of that sadness. And then you think about chicken again or whatever <laughs> it is that you're eating that evening. And this kind of, I guess it points to that, that same sort of thing. It's maybe slightly different from most of my writing in the way that it's not as abstract. Um, but I think it's taking a more human perspective of this idea that um, kind of there is no articulable truth. Everything just kind of happens at once. And this is maybe a more kind of relatable idea of that experience that, you know, yeah, we we live in a world which is, it's very, we have very direct and immediate experiences with things, but they're also hallucinatory and imagined. 
and we kind of have this strange experience which we are sort of conscious of and but mostly not that we are projecting our ideas onto the world and then we're ingesting them. Yes, uh, I, I think this I think this idea of a strained experience um, really comes through in the sense of kind of the the overlapping thoughts that happen um, in this text, kind of a barrage, one after the other after the other. And I think one thing that really stands out for me in this text and what I imagine may stand out for a lot of readers is the uncertainty contained within the work there is this fundamental uh, doubt or suspicion towards things. Um, for example, uh, the opening lines here, let me uh, just get it. Um, the opening lines, I'm holding in my palms a small cup of tea. Well, it's a bowl, a small bowl of warm tea. It's a little too warm. It's a hot cup of tea. That is a little too hot. I'm sitting, holding my tea, watching it lose its steam. I'm watching it evaporate, but it's not really evaporating. I'm watching it lose itself without really losing itself. And, um, God, what a nutcase! <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think it's brilliant because each clause seems to contradict, or more accurately, correct the last. The speaker seems to be hyperconscious of the way ordinary language as in the natural way we speak, the common phrases we are drawn to, how these, how these things are misleading or inaccurate. Yet, obviously paired with this is a speaker who is searching for clarity, searching for truth, interrogating all um, of their experiences. Um, so I think this relationship between text and knowledge is really, really interesting. Between the text and knowledge is really interesting. Um, in this piece and I, I know it's something that you've spoken about uh so far in this interview this idea of kind of like ascertaining truth and the fallibility of language yeah i think yeah i mean i think a lot of it's really just i mean there's always this kind of criticism i think which i'm trying to get to is that i enjoy that interrogative process and i think it's like quite common to my experience of things but at the end of the day, I know that, like, it's all nonsense. Like, this is all just ridiculous, like, playground nonsense. And really, all there is to do is look at the moon and cry. Mm. And I think that also, that I, that's what I think I loved about Fernando Pessoa is he's, like, he's he's constantly, like, showing you his this really intricate thought process. And he's completely caught up in it, but he knows it's nonsense. And he knows only looking at the moon is really, like, what works, what's worthwhile. Mm, mm, I like that. I like that as the the conclusion to this long rambling sentence is the utter, uh, not stupidity, but ridiculousness of that long rambling sentence. Um, but is that all that's going on here? Because I mean, is is that all it is? This the the uh, an exploration of the way that the speaker interrogates the world, or is there greater symbolism to this evaporating tea to the thoughts on the mother? Well, I mean, I guess it's it's maybe, I don't know, trite for me to go into, um, to actually, I don't know, to have any authority on what the, what the symbolism is, but there seems to be a lot cropping up in my, my writing and my life and my stuff to do with, um, yeah, to do with my mother and to do with, I guess, death and uh sort of sacrifice and stuff like that but i think maybe it's just like it's a fear of losing my parents mm. i think that that comes across but there is this kind of um i've always held in quite high reverence the the sort of archetype of the mother mm. right and um i think it's like I'm not sure I can fully remember the piece, but I think there's this idea of trying to find that tenderness, that maternal tenderness, um, and seeing that maternal tenderness like trapped in, trapped in a kind of humanness or like a or a fear, a fear of having to exist in this world. Um, and I think that is sort of replicated in what you said about the tea. 
um, that everything's kind of like just trying to become itself, but so scared of becoming the thing that it's not meant to be. So they're like, they get caught up in all kinds of kind of crap. And then we also try to confine them into sort of things. And really it's just, the tea's just like, yo, I'm just a motherfucking tea. I'm just tea in here. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a wonderful answer. I, I, I like that. I like, I like how, I mean, you, you almost started with this almost shedding of any authority. The, the idea that, um, I mean, I almost thought you were <laughs> no, going I to say, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I thought you were going to say that, um, you know, you just, you Stop asking me dumb questions. really <laughs> don't want to offer an authoritative reading and that the symbolism is open. But then you gave quite a, a detailed and, and thoughtful answer to, to the question. Um, and I think, but it's I think also, it, I think, it, oh, I think it's no, also on. quite, uh, quite worthwhile, um, disregarding what I just said and just calling it bollocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think I think all texts are always free to be unique pieces to the readers that they can they can take whatever they want from it. But it is interesting as well just to get a sense of where the writer was going because I'm not I don't prescribe to this idea of the complete death of the author and that there's no relation between the text and the writer. I think that there is something interesting in the thoughts and inspirations of a text and well while talking about that i think maybe it would be a good time to move on to the other piece waterboard suicide now we haven't really touched too deeply onto the politics of the piece um and i mean that's quite a really evident uh piece to this poem um i think it'd be a great uh to get a greater sense of where that comes from um was it was there a particular event or moment that sparked the writing of this piece or was it just the gradual build-up of 10 years or so of a Tory government? Um, obviously, the comparison of Cameron to Corbyn is a recurrent theme in the piece, but they're not always presented as at odds with each other. Um, obviously, there is that fantastic line and Corbyn and Cameron are listening to jazz. Um, so... If there is one, what is the political statement of this piece? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure it is that political uh, piece. Um, it actually just came about. Um, I was, I was just sitting outside a, a coffee shop I often go to and drinking karak, which is this, like Beiruti type chai, and um, there was McDonald's opposite, and I'm just like it's just like an absurdist abstraction of what's going on and yeah I mean, using that, like kind of political yeah that's really interesting considering what we were just talking about the the kind of separation of like how a reader um reads it and how uh, <laughs> you meant to write it because this is a great example of where i mean i read this poem and i i felt the momentum and the pace of the piece was really driving me forward and you get all these references to um kind of like this anthropomorphized capitalism and kind of these uh, politicians and kind of consumer capitalism. And I, I really felt this strong kind of political message there. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's great that um, actually you were just sat outside of a cafe <laughs> and just having maybe a kind of experimental um, kind of uh, creative practice with your surroundings. I think that's brilliant. Um, yeah. Just really interesting. There is a slight, there is a political element to it, but I'm kind of interested in what your, what you see. I think you said reign of the Tory government as if this is a very leftist poem. Is that, is that, I was mean, that your take? What's it's, I mean, was, you know, you make a very good point that it's, it's hard to really um, get down to whether this poem does have a statement, which is why I was questioning whether there even was one, because it, it appears it could be leftist just because it has, you know, many references to, you know, it's got references to Marx. It has references to a lot of um, consumerist symbols, people lining up to go into McDonald's. And it has almost this rhetoric of kind of um, uh, exploring the the absurdity of, uh, you know, modern neoliberal consumerism. Um, so you get lent there. But this is why I asked the question, because there is not really a definitive statement um made and there are these moments like corbin and cameron are listening to jazz which seem to suggest this this alter alternative idea maybe a sense of union maybe a sense of divisions not being the way so for me it's a piece that it really inspires a reader to ask more questions than a piece that you know is polemical and and telling you what you know is wrong and what is good i think it's much more kind of 
uh, inspires an inquisitive mood, you know, in, into how all of these dynamics interact and engage with each other. Um, and I mean, maybe yeah. that's unique to me, or maybe you know, it's uh, uh, maybe many people read it that way. We can't really tell. But I think I think that was maybe much of its focus. Like, I mean, this was written at a time when I was thinking about like how politics is done, and um, but I think there is definitely that. I, I I do I guess I like doing that or just like fucking with people because I'll use like um kind of uh metaphors or memes or whatever that that just naturally hold so much kind of weight just by mentioning them. You don't need to say anything about them, right? Like you say, you know, like you say Das Kapital and it already you already have so much crap that surrounds it and then sort of not paying any attention to that crap that comes with it. Mm. Um, or I mean, not that's really good because it, it, it's it's almost playing at the other end of the language um, questions that you're interested in in this idea that you know uh, in the other texts you're really kind of um, trying to lay bare language and try and get away from its associations but in this one you're, you're moving to the language that is heavy and weighted with these like preconceived conceptions and you're using that I mean that's I think that, that works really well kind of um, with your other pieces yeah I think well I mean essentially it's to do the same thing to get away from it right mm, yeah. but it's maybe more more fiery yeah. in its um, but I think that there is definitely with with most of what I write and with the, is that union I think a lot of this poem is if there is a political sense to it it is saying yo we're all just like lost people wandering the earth confused trying like to feel the best we can in ourselves without hurting other people and sometimes we really fuck up and then we listen to jazz and that's what the heads of state are doing too and mm, mm. so like you I, know a, a very humanizing project in there um yeah i think that's really interesting and I, i'm i'm quite curious about how that aspect of the piece plays with the more absurd and abstract moments you know there's the character of chicken who talks to a child at the end there's the anthropomorphization of capitalism walking through an open door there's your beard reciting a revolution and obviously my favorite mcdonald's reading das capital um and i mean how, how do these abstract moments relate to the work and this overall kind of message of uh what we're all like and all the unity and experience that we're going through. Um, like, why are they there? And how do you imagine a reader will interact with them? Or are they, is it just something that you like doing? Is it just a, a fun way to explore concepts and language? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely fun. I like doing, uh, I like, yeah, I like playing with stuff. But um, I think there is this, it's again to do with this sort of uh, paradox that, the, the normal forms of language kind of try to like box things up into some sort of duality and I think that's what's happening with politics like there isn't there isn't much concept in like political sphere to be you're either left wing or you're right wing there's not really or you're centrist the centrist is not like it's not non-dualistic either mm. um there's this kind of and it's I mean politics is just one example of it but this whole like form of language where everything is like just for something or against it. And then the next thing is against the thing that it was for. Um, when I think like reality in its most complex form uh, is, is far more complex and far more simple. It's much more direct than that. And it's trying to kind of just break all those kind of conceptions or those associations or just, and the, I think the fact that it sort of fucks with you kind of shows how um how present those uh dualistic constructs are built into the language because and so it's like i kind of do think like you know mcdonald's is reading das capital like that's just that's just how the world is mm. um and you know whatever it's, it's probably pretending it's um a communist as well whilst you know selling a salad um so is it is it like these these so these abstract absurd moments kind of 
play with the the way that we put the world into these binary oppositions the way that we put these world into these binary separations so you take those binaries and you you kind of present them in this hyper absurd way but as you say there is a little truth to it maybe it's not that absurd maybe it's just because of the way we kind of put these binaries um in our mind the way that we read the world that you know uh we think this way and the absurdity the abstract nature of these things kind of forces us to confront that yeah i, I mean i kind of feel that way i don't know mm-hmm. if every, <laughs> i don't know if that's how you feel or how everybody else feels but yeah i think there's mm. i mean well, I think... maybe maybe i just belong in a mental hospital but no no it's... no no i think i think it comes through in the work and i think it works really well and i think it was one of the things that really uh, drew us to keep it in the magazine. And I mean, to choose to have it in the magazine. It was, um, there is something beautiful and playful in the way that the language of your work interacts with the world and how it forces the reader to acknowledge and think about the way they interact with the world and the way that they use language to interact with the world. And I think, I think that your pieces really force people to ask questions. And I think that's the best thing a work can do, be a piece that forces you to think and ask questions i think that's more important than a piece that gives you answers um and yeah i think it's very effective um Uh, thank you that's all right so before we draw this interview to an end um can you talk uh about what you're working on right now do you have any literary projects goals or future plans at the moment that you're working towards yeah um maybe i've got a uh, i'm pretty slow yeah i've got (laughs) A lot of, I've got like three unpublished books that need to be, uh, there's a novella that I'm working on um, and another collection of poetry. Um, hopefully they'll come out um, soonish, maybe sometime next year. Hmm. Um, the novella is a, I actually wrote it quite a while ago and I think you were, you know, when you were talking about uh this idea of not being able to write a novel um unless it's like meticulously planned out and you have this strong structure and i kind of always had that sense because i've always written in such like intense bursts and i was like i can't write a novel and just like admiring people who do um and also just never wanting to step away from that kind of intense relentless stream of consciousness um but after my dad was in hospital like maybe two years ago or something and he had uh uh yeah he had cancer like Mm, tongue cancer and he yeah no but he was fine in the end but there's kind of after that when I came home and just sort of you know I just had a period of just having baths for a month and then just like wrote this like kind of novel on my phone and what I realized is it was just I would just do these intense blast type things but there was this underlying consciousness of some sort of narrative of some sort of idea basically uh, which is basically just this guy who's having a um, an unworldly experience and he doesn't know what the hell it is he doesn't know if he's dead he doesn't know if he's um, if he's just you know had a super great orgasm or what's going on hmm. um, and it's really, it was really take this up, like extracting from this one moment when my dad was kind of going into his surgery and he looks up and I'm like, oh shit, this guy thinks he might die. Yeah. And I was like, that never, that never crossed my mind. And it's just the novel, the, the, the whole story is just him looking at this, mm, mm, yeah, looking I mean, at death. Basically. Yeah, I think, I think confronting those moments of like human experience that we kind of try to ignore uh, it's often, uh, you know, really motivates people towards, you know, creative things such as that. I mean, I it, I think one of the most interesting parts of all of that was that you said you wrote a novella on your phone, which I mean is brilliant in <laughs> itself, quite impressive. But yeah, so you've got a lot a lot of things, co- uh, projects and things, um, and that's really exciting. So um, do you have anywhere that uh, listeners to this can kind of like stay updated and find your work, a website or social media that you want to plug? Um yeah, sure. Uh, at Ilias Kassam is my Instagram and IliasKassam.com is my website. Um, yeah, things things should appear there, hopefully. Okay. Brilliant. Well, we will they, put uh, both of those into the description uh, wherever you are listening to this. And um, obviously we are going to finish this uh 
interview with a short reading from I believe you're gonna pick a new work not something in the magazine um so stay till the end to hear that but thank you so much for joining us today Ilias it was a pleasure to discuss your work and your process and you know all these metaphysical concepts with you um thank you man thank you thank you all for listening and we will see you next time thank you very much So this is a piece I wrote last night, it's called Forest Milk. I have bared witness to your this, a clavicle laid upon mother's scepter. There is here everywhere you go. She tells a story and you sell her yours. There is a here regardless of your skin. You lay next to it, she is imprisoned by your tomb, and mother has found the needle before there was time to know its fragrance. Shout at the heavens, there is an empty forest. Shout at the trees, to the heavens, through the forest. Shout from your knees, to the always. Heavens, the forests are bare. Angels commune in fossils of this. The fossils are burned and barren and step-daughtered by desert. Hades is mowing the lawn. Hades is mowing your lawn. Hades is mowing her lawn. Wake up, barren is your only sister. Hopelessness is your only saving grace. It's a sign, read it again, the forest is barren, hopelessness is your only saving grace. Angels are vomiting on cacti, on picked prickles, angels vomit is made of crystals, angels vomit is the birthplace of your true self. Turn the Bible, open to the page on self-care, the one with the yogis and animals and doves flying to greet our father, turn to the page that is covered in blood. Hopelessness is your only saving grace. Turn to the birthday party, to the plague and the dying children. Turn to the bush, the bush alive with fire. Turn the fire into fuel and set light to your despair. Even angel's blood is laced with crystals. Vomit is a beggar's blood. Paint the pages with your crystal blood. Hopelessness is not so poor. Hopelessness is your unburned fuel. Look to the stars, the forest is barren, the trees are lifted. Look for her roots, the forest is barren, but it is not a desert. Look for the weeds, the forest is barren, but it is not your mistress. The forest is virginal, the forest is alive, the forest is alive with all that is fertile. The forest is fallow and drenched in your darkness, drenched in her angel. The forest is alive and filled with dead mistress, the forest is alive and filled with a virgin. The forest is here, the forest is you. The forest has held you in your hopelessness so you may know her weeds. The forest is alive. The forest is you. The forest is alive. The forest is you. Step down from fragile altar. Offer your breathing. Here is your only curse word. Offer it to your mother. You are alive and filled with a forest. Matters After Print is a series of interviews affiliated with The Horizon magazine, hosted and produced by Benjamin Wolf. Thank you for listening.